The gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John. We're going to be reading from chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. 
but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been for some months now in a study in the gospel according to John. And this morning, for about the fifth Sunday in a row, uh, we're with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is covered in the seventh and eighth chapter of John. And maybe this morning, as, as we read through the conversations that Jesus had with the Pharisees, it was like, you were thinking, what's going on here? I'm not following all of this. Well, I have good news for you. This morning, we're going to stand back and look at it, and you will understand it. And I can't wait to talk about what we're going to talk about, what we're going to think about this morning. Sometimes we hear from the world, in fact, most every week, in some way, we hear the world questioning God's word. We hear the world questioning our faith, questioning Jesus and the identity of Jesus. And I think many Christians, especially in the last 30 years, have been overwhelmed by this and how we sometimes think, I don't have an answer to the world. I don't have an answer to the world's scholarship. And we think, as we see, especially in our time, the church being replaced by a secular worship, a worship of humanity, a worship of self. Maybe as you watched television and all the sports this week, you saw advertisements and you want to say, where's God in all of this? Where's God's word? Is there no answer? This morning we're going to talk about that. If we're going to be a church in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we must learn to be apologetic, not apologizing in the sense of saying, I'm sorry. But the true meaning of apologist means a defender of the faith, an apologist for the faith. We're going to talk about that a bit this morning. Before we do, let's pray and talk to the Father and ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you this morning. This week, every evening, 
we have sought out news about a war halfway around the world. In the morning, we seek out news. What's happened? What is happening? Our Father, when there are sudden, vicious attacks upon any nation, we remember the sinfulness of mankind and the words that you gave the Apostle Paul about man's depravity. And you said the way of peace they have not known. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Oh, Father, how true. We speak every week about the sinfulness in our own hearts. That sinfulness now is being manifested in this war. We bow before you this morning as our Father, asking you to teach us how to pray, how to pray for Israel, how to pray for the nations around her. According to your word, Father, we should pray for the sword of the nation to be successful in putting an end to these attacks. For you ordained government to be a protector of the people. Our Father, you also tell us to always pray for your church, for your people. And this morning, in this comfort that we have, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East. Father, bless your people there. Bless your church. Whether she be in Israel or dwelling in the midst of the nations around Israel, protect her, protect your people. And at the same time, cause your people to minister to the wounds, physical and spiritual, of all those caught in this conflict. We pray that your justice would rule this conflict, destroy the evil, raise up the good. We pray that, Father, righteous presidents and prime ministers and kings will heed each other's counsel bring a lasting solution to the hatred and strife that gives birth to unrelenting rebellion and war oh father we yearn for the return of Jesus that will put an end to the sin, put an end to rebellion, and bring a peace that is beyond imagination. Oh, Father, hasten the day when your Son will return. As your priest, we pray for those who are hurting around us. Remember Mr. Harris this morning, Father. We pray that you would bring healing and recovery 
We pray that, Father, you would bless him. Not just in the recovery from surgery, but, Father, we pray that you would bring healing from this awful cancer. Bless his family to be a, a blessing to him. And teach him, Father, teach all of us to look forward with anticipation for what you have prepared for us. We thank you for how you have blessed David Mattingly this week. We pray that you'll continue to bring healing. Father, give the doctors wisdom in all the tests and all the research to know exactly what is wrong. We bow before you, Father, for others in our congregation that are hurting physically and who, Father, are stressed in different ways in marriages or by children. Oh, Father, you know all of those concerns right now. And we lay them before you. Now, Father, as we open your word, once more we say, John Sartell cannot teach us in a way that would change us, in a way that would make us different. We look to you, Father, for we've heard your voice, and you have changed us. Maybe there's someone here that has not heard that voice, and we pray that this morning they would hear it, and they would be changed, knowing when they leave that the God of heaven and earth has spoken to them. We're your children, Father. Teach us this morning. Change us. Continue to grow us in Christ. For his glory, we pray. Amen. Jesus, why should we believe you? We have been with Jesus at the great fall feast of the tabernacles. This is a feast that was in Jerusalem. We've been here since September. We have spent five Sundays with Jesus at this specific feast. The apostle John must have thought that this was critical, a critical time in the life of Jesus. There are 21 chapters in the gospel according to John, he spends two of those chapters, one-tenth of the book, in this one feast. Why? Well, let's put it in context. Jesus is at the height of his fame. We have seen that before he made his presence known at the feast, his name was on everyone's lips. They were all looking for him. Where is Jesus? Friend and foe. 
in six months. Six months from this time, he would be back in Jerusalem for the Passover. And that would be when he would be slain. This is his last visit to Jerusalem before that time. He comes to the Feast of Tabernacles. We read incognito. When Jesus does make himself known, he makes three very public, astounding claims to deity. Now, at this time, you know the critical time. Jesus, this is a dangerous city for you. It's a dangerous time for you. When you come here next time, you will be crucified. It might be best to lay low. He best started that way. It was incognito. But then, then he did what he had been doing all of his ministry. He stood and he made three astounding claims to deity. First, and we've seen two of them. First, at a very critical ceremony on the last day of the feast, we saw him stand and declare his deity. Look at chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he had made the same assertion being the living water, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember that. But at the feast, he shouted this. At the most critical time of the feast, he stood and shouted this to all of Israel. Drink of me, I'm the water of life. Secondly, the second claim, last week we focused on this. It's found in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now in the Old Testament, God was consistently pictured as being light, the light of the world. In Isaiah 9, the, we saw this last week, the Messiah is pictured as that great light that would dispel the darkness in Israel. Here Jesus is saying, I'm the light of which Isaiah wrote. I am that light, the light of the world. And then this morning, those were the first two claims. Then this morning at the end of chapter 8, during the same visit to Jerusalem, the Pharisees were speaking with Jesus about Abraham. And Jesus announces that Abraham had seen Jesus' day and rejoiced. And look at John 8 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And notice here, Jesus did not say, no, 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 that's not what I said. <laughs> Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
in that statement, he not only claimed to be alive before Abraham, he claimed to be God. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. That's not what he said. It's what we'd expect. Instead, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Look at X. Why did he answer? That's a strange answer. Look at Exodus 3, 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's why Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So we have the first claim at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7, I'm the living water. The second claim at the feast comes at the beginning of chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. The third claim at the feast comes at the end of chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. So, now this is what I want you to hear. Remember what we, all those verses we read this morning and you said, well, what is this? Between those three claims, it's simple. Between those three claims, we have a combative dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus concerning his identity and their unbelief. That's all it's about. Every verse is about his identity, his identity and their hostility and unbelief. Just let's look at, at four verses uh, on your scripture sheet. If you look on the back, the second uh, set of scriptures down, it's, it says 13. Look at that for a minute. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony. What testimony? The testimony that he's deity. The testimony that he is the light of the world. Look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Again, it's about Jesus' identity. So they said to him, look at verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Now look at this is so beautiful. This is the umpteenth time he's made a claim. And they said, are you really saying this about yourself? Do you expect us to believe that you're God? So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. This is nothing new. I've said it over and over again. And then you go down to verse 53. And they say it again. Who do you make yourself out to be? Do you see? That's what the whole passage is about. His identity and their hostility and unbelief to it. But now we're going to make a turn. The question becomes then, is John's record reliable? Is the, is, is the apostle John's record here, is it reliable? Is the gospel reliable? Did Jesus really say and do these things? Or did John just make them up to elevate Jesus to a position that Jesus really did not claim? Why is that important? Because 
the main argument of our culture, the main argument, we look and see every single day, we see the secular culture around us. Do you know what their main argument against Jesus is? Against the Jesus of Scripture? The main argument is he didn't really say he was light of the world. He really didn't say that he was the living water. He really didn't say that before Abraham was, I am. If John's record is not reliable, if Jesus did not really make these claims and do these miracles, then we are believing fairy tales. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth in the 15th chapter when he was speaking the whole 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about the resurrection. And there were some people in Corinth, Christians inside the church, who were saying, it doesn't matter whether we don't believe he was raised from the dead, and it really doesn't matter. What did Paul say to them? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Do you see that? Your faith is useless. It's futile if you're still, and you're still in your sins. Look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if he hasn't been raised. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why are we of all people most to be pitied? Because we're believing and building our lives on a fairy tale. Just so, if Christ did not say these things, if they, he didn't make these claims to deity, then we're believing in a fairy tale. So we need to answer the question. This is the main message. This is the main argument. Secular universities, if your children are going to secular universities, this is what they're hearing about the New Testament and about the Bible. In graduate schools, even in seminaries, you know this, I've talked to you about my my. It, experience in a very very liberal seminary and I was taught by men renowned for their scholarship that Jesus really didn't say these things that's the argument the the apostles and the people that came after Jesus put these words in his mouth that's what your children will be taught that's what your grandchildren will be taught in our culture how did we come to this point? What will you tell them? You have an answer. You have an answer. Now you're going to think about what I say next. You're going to say, this is kind of over my head. Nothing I've said is over anybody's head in this room. And you better understand it for the sake of your children and your grandchildren. In the 17th and 18th centuries, a movement came out of the Enlightenment, calling it a doubt, biblical revelation. This couldn't be the Word of God. God doesn't speak into our world if there is a God. Their presupposition was that it was ridiculous to think that God actually spoke into our world. That this book, the Bible, is God's word. 
Now, in the church, since the early church, there had always been a method of research called lower criticism. Lower criticism was a good thing and is a good thing. It sought to look back at the ancient texts and produce the best translation of those texts. We've talked about this in recent weeks. But the movement coming out of the Enlightenment developed a method called higher criticism. And higher criticism called into question the actual teachings. They weren't going back to look at the originals. They called into question the actual teachings of Scripture. It was an effort. Their presupposition was God, if he exists, certainly didn't speak into our world. God, if he exists, didn't become flesh. That's ludicrous. That's got to be mythology. It was an effort to destroy anything supernatural in the Scriptures. They started with the Old Testament. I can still remember the day I was sitting in Bibles in a Bible class in a college where I went. And it happened to be the professor was, he was an unbeliever. And he was a minister in the Presbyterian church. And he began to go through the miracles of the Old Testament and just mark them out and say, those, those didn't happen, those didn't happen, those didn't happen. They wanted to demonstrate that the Bible was man's creation, not God's. They would study the ancient cultures, literary genres, characteristics of individual writers, and submit their ideas and prove this is how the Bible came to be. It didn't come from God. It came from man. Using these presuppositions, and a presupposition is something that you suppose at the beginning. It's not based on scholarship. It's not based on truth. It's just you start with that. You start with, well, there's no God. Or you start with, there's no God. You know this. We live in a modern times. God just doesn't speak into our world. Well, The brilliant scholar and minister, Albert Schweitzer, was a powerful adherent to this effort. And all through the 19th century, the 1800s, several landmark books, about every 25 years, were written about the search for the real Jesus. They were going to get rid of all the miracles and they were going to work back and we would find the Jesus that was born by natural means into this world and he didn't do miracles and he didn't claim to be God. He was just a man. He may have been a great teacher. This movement in the 19th century that came out of the Enlightenment in the 19th century became known as the quest for the historical Jesus. We're going to get back to the real Jesus. We're going to do away with all the myths. Well, Schweitzer, brilliant composer, minister, philosopher, scholar, 
He wrote a book in 1906 called Quest for the Historical Jesus. Now, he was an adherent of this. I mean, he really believed this. However, in his book, he goes back and he looks at all the efforts that were made. He does book reviews of all the books that had been written on the quest for the historical Jesus. And you know what he said? He came to the end of his book and he said, the quest for the historical Jesus has failed. He said, when we take out, when we've gone through scripture, by the way, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of this great nation, he loved Jesus. In the sense, he liked Jesus. He wasn't in love with the Jesus of the Gospels as you are. But he admired Jesus' teachings. And so he took the, his New Testament with a razor and he began to cut out any claim Jesus made to deity. He claimed, he, he, marked, he cut out any reference to any miracle. Miracles didn't happen. Jesus never claimed that. And he had his book. His book on historical Jesus, based on his presuppositions. Schweitzer looked at all that, examined it as a scholar, and said, we failed. Because when you mark out everything, when the scholars had marked out everything they could possibly mark out, do you know what was left? There was still Jesus claiming to be God in what they had left in. They couldn't get rid of it. And there were their miracles. They couldn't get rid of it. And Schweitzer exposed them. Well, what did he believe? What did he conclude? Since Jesus really did say these things, and the quest for the historical Jesus failed, Jesus really said these things. He said he, Jesus had a, was a regular guy, had a messianic complex, believed he was a Messiah, and said things about it, claimed miracles, and said he died on a Roman cross. A failed Messiah, a would-be Messiah, who had absolutely failed. In other words, Schweitzer said, Jesus was insane. He was a lunatic because he said and believed these things. Schweitzer and we'll call them the liberals of that day They needed to pay attention to these Pharisees. If you look at this passage this morning, that's why I'm talking to you about this. I've waited. I wanted to mention this back in chapter 6, and I came to this pulpit with discipline. I said, I will not mention it. I was waiting till now. Because the Pharisees literally in this passage affirm that Jesus stood there making these claims. His claim, his claims go back to his trial. 
His claim was a centerpiece at his trial. The Pharisees present another problem. I mean, what did, what did they do? This whole chapter, I said, what, did we say? They, what were they doing? They were questioning Jesus, and they were saying, how dare you say that? The Pharisees had one thing in common with those in the quest for the historical Jesus. Those Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus because of his claims and because of his miracles. Just like the people in the quest for the historical Jesus, just like the secular world of our day. Look at, look at this for a second. When Jesus told them, before Abraham was, I am. What did the Pharisees do? Look at verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. The penalty for blaspheming for anyone who claimed to be God and blasphemed God was stoning. That's why they were doing it. They were going to stone him. The, the, the Pharisees, if Jesus didn't say this, they wouldn't have been picking up stones at the trial. What was the single accusation against Jesus at the trial? Read it this afternoon. Read it in Matthew and Luke and John. He claimed to be God. And actually, they pressed him that night. They pressed him that night. And he finally said, that's, that's who I am. They said, we don't need to hear anymore. Take him to the cross. Take him to the crucifixion. And the Pharisees present another problem to the modern denial of the miracles of Jesus. They themselves not only heard his statements, they witnessed his miracles. And the one thing they never did, they tried it a couple of times. They tried to deny and say, he really didn't do this. <laughs> and the world around them said, are you kidding? You were standing right there. You saw it. We'll see that next week in chapter 9. Great miracle in chapter 9. Read ahead to chapter 9. That's where we'll be next week. And Jesus does this miracle. And they try to deny it. And there was just no way to do that. Folks, what are we saying? The gospel is not a fairy tale. Faith in Jesus is not a blind leap in the dark. Quit listening to the pseudo-scholarship that says you're not intelligent. You're not a scholar. One of the greatest scholars I've ever known was a man that was like R.C. Sproul. He was a friend of R.C.'s. His name was Philip Edgecombe Hughes. You've heard me talk about him. He was one of my, he was a visiting professor at Columbia Seminary where I was in this liberal seminary. And someone had put up the money for him to come and teach. And they were very careful to keep him away as much as they could from the main part of the seminary. But he was a world-renowned scholar. Spoke like eight languages. Has been to medical school. And then went into the ministry. 
brilliant, recognized by liberal scholars and conservative scholars as being a scholar scholar. And he pointed to this one day. We, the two of us were talking very early, soon after I met him. He said, John, you've been raised, you've been taught that you can't be a scholar. You can't be an educated scholar and possibly believe the Bible. And his whole point for that year I spent with him was to show me that you can be a scholar. You can read all the books and understand that Scripture does not ask you to make a leap of faith in the dark, to dismiss your intelligence, to dismiss your scholarship. Faith, people, faith in Jesus is a wise, intelligent, and scholarly decision. But as we come down to the end, I want us to make one more point. The Pharisees here stand as a stark warning to the church in every age. What we read this morning stands as a stark warning to John Sartell and to CCRC. Think what these Pharisees had. They had the entire Old Testament pointing to the coming of the Messiah. In our studies, we have seen that Jesus is all through. The Old Testament is saturated with that coming Messiah, with the coming of the Son of God, that there would be a Messiah. Israel knew he was there. They knew he was coming. They were looking for him for centuries. They knew the details of where he was to be born. Isaiah wrote in detail, 700 years before he was born, Isaiah wrote in detail about his crucifixion. They knew that. They knew that the Old Testament prophets had said that he would be powerful. He would have a powerful ministry in Galilee. He would be a great king, and yet he would be a servant. He would be a deity, and yet somehow he would suffer. These men, these Pharisees, had spent their lives studying the Old Testament. Yet here was Christ, the Christ of all Christ, the God of all gods. And they saw the miracles and they heard the claims. And they missed it. They were conspiring against him to actually kill the Messiah that God had sent. This is not the Romans here in this passage. This was the church the church of the Old Testament. They had all of this. Sometimes we look at this. We see a church today like I was assigned a, a church when I was in seminary that I had to attend. The gospel was not preached there. It was only for the first six months. The gospel was not preached there. It's strange. I was going to church on Sunday morning and I wasn't hearing about sin and Jesus, the Son of God and Savior sinners. It was a church. 
I want us to see this is a warning. They had so much and they got it wrong. Jesus actually says in our scripture this morning, look at it, that the church had become an instrument of Satan. Look at verse 43. Why do you you not understand what I say? This is Jesus speaking. It is because you cannot bear... You cannot bear to hear my word. You're under, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus, when he said this, he was not speaking to a licentious Herod. He was not speaking to some pagan Roman governor. These were the highest and most revered religious leaders in Israel. And Jesus said they're agents of Satan. See, it's possible to be the church like we are today and to lose it. To be more affected by the culture instead of affecting the culture and changing culture, to be affected by the culture. Well, there's more to say, but we must close. You know why this bothers me so much? Not only, it's not just that I sat in a Presbyterian seminary and heard just rank unbelief. I saw a church do this. I saw a denomination do this. That's why it bothers me. I'm your minister. Every week, I must bring you God's word. Not my opinion, but God's word. I'm to tell you about Jesus. I'm to tell you about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. I'm to teach you that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that one and only Savior. Paul said to Timothy, Paul was about to die. He was in Rome under the sentence of death. And he wrote a letter to Timothy saying, get here as soon as you can. Timothy was his young protege, a young pastor. And in that letter, in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote, Timothy, and this is so full of pathos. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching Keep a close eye, Timothy. Persist in this. Why? For in so doing, you will save yourself. And your hearers. I ask you, congregation, of CCRC, if we don't hold tenaciously to this in this culture, 
If we don't give answers to our children and to our grandchildren, who will teach them? Who will teach them? My greatest fear is to become the Pharisee. My greatest fear is for the church to cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.